0: Because of record inflation, many Canadians are visiting food banks for the first time in their lives, and more and more families are increasingly reliant on regular food bank usage. The Veterans Association Food Bank has seen a sharp increase in demand, and they urgently need your help. If you are part of a community association such as Rotary, the Lions Club, or a Masonic Lodge, or if you work at a large company, our veterans need your help please organize a food drive or a reverse bottle drive to raise donations and funds to support the Veterans Association Food Bank in both Calgary and Edmonton. Individual donations are also welcome. To find out more about how you can help, please visit veteransassociationfoodbank.ca or you can find them on Facebook. Hello friends, thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible, with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Good morning, all you beautiful souls, and thank you for joining me for another fantastic edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. One thing a lot of people don't know is that under the Veterans Charter, RCMP, are, when they get out, are veterans. They're under D&D somehow, but they're national, they're federal. And therefore, they do have veteran status just like soldiers. But that never seems to be included in Remembrance Day, which is coming up here shortly. Um, do you attend Re- Remembrance Day ceremonies, Lori?
1: I do, but I'm unable to wear my uniform anymore, which is really disappointing. And uh, that actually really was ha- it highlighted yesterday when there was a regimental funeral for an RCMP officer, too. It's, it, there are certain times of the year, of course, um, that I'm, I'm really anxious to be able to wear my uniform, but I, I can't. So I go in person, but I, I am not part of the actual parade or anything
0: yeah a lot of us have associations uh, in the military so we throw on an association jacket or a legion jacket or me i just put on a blazer then i uh, something to stick my medals on uh do you do you do the same
1: I haven't yet. I mean, I retired just before COVID hit, and so some of the ceremonies since I have left that um, weren't really taking place in the same way that they have historically. So I'm going to look into that actually, because I recently went to a an RCMP vet's meeting, and and I don't have any of the attire, and I need to I need to get something.
0: Well, it doesn't have to be official. I mean, any blazer uh, or any jacket. Uh, are you comfortable wearing your medals at a at a at a special event or a speaking gig or Remembrance Day or is that something? Because there's a lot of people that keep them in the box as well.
1: I do. I have a little shadow box here, I, I've never I've never done that. In fact, I've never really considered it.
0: Never just never, never considered wearing them at Remembrance Day. No, I've never have. Why is that? Do you think?
1: I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I see other people doing it, and so I haven't seen it being kind of modeled. I've I've seen the the soldiers and then you know the military vets do that, but I've never seen RCMP officers do it. I don't know. It's something to consider.
0: Do you think that uh, have you ever had a sense of feeling kind of left out at Remembrance Day, or is that do you think is that a conversation among the the mounties? Because there's always RCMP at Remembrance Day ceremonies. But uh, although they have veteran status, they don't seem to be really recognized in the public as, uh, as veterans.
1: I don't know what the conversation overall is. I just know that for, for me, I've made it a point to bring my children to go. And so I haven't really gone so much in a work capacity. I've just gone in a personal capacity in so many years just because of not being able to participate in the parade part itself. Um, I remember years ago... There was a, my, one of my kids was in a soccer tournament on Remembrance Day. And I was so frustrated that they didn't do a, um, like a moment of silence. You know, it's this big soccer tournament. There are hundreds of, hundreds and hundreds of kids there. And I thought, okay, we don't have school on this day. Not all provinces have a day off for Remembrance Day. And if you're going to run a soccer tournament, you need to be respecting why we're actually off today. It's not because of soccer. There's a very, very important reason. And we need to teach our children that. And I actually wrote a letter into the association. I was pretty happy about it because the next year they, they did make a, a to do about it. And rightly so. That's exactly what that day is for.
0: I think people want to do better. They're just not told. And it's uh, starting to fall out of our culture, out of our society. Um, when I lived in Shurd Park, the, uh, Millennium Place is where they uh, would hold a Remembrance Day ceremonies, and you'd look up and there's people in the gym that's attached, and they're not even uh, just going away on on their treadmill, <laughs> you know, they yeah. don't even take take the moment, and that reverence, that um, idea of something being sacred is just, just not there for some people, and yet for those of us that uh, it means something, it means everything. Yes,
1: I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I think that was actually probably one of the things growing up in a, in a province that I think typically does not get Remembrance Day off as a staff. Um, I think that was one of the things, at least there were important school ceremonies and, and things that happened annually that really taught us about Remembrance Day and what the meaning was, and so there are sort of pros and cons to to having the day off as a family to go and, and pay respects in, in the community, but also if it's um, in, in a school environment, we learn so much, too, because we're studying it on the way um, leading up to Remembrance Day as well, and so I think that's important as well.
0: Even in workplaces, uh, once I caught out um, rem- on Remembrance Day, I didn't care what was happening. If uh, you're not going to give me the day off, I'm taking the day off, and it's not even a conversation. Like, screw you. <laughs> I'm not sh- I'm not showing up on Remembrance Day, and that's that, colon sick whatever. Nobody ever did give me a hard time for it, but, um, uh, they wouldn't have the moment moment of silence or anything like that. And even in the workplace. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate. I think that's a bit of our culture that we're losing at, uh, do you consider yourself a veteran now that you're out? I
1: consider myself an RCMP veteran. I, yeah. I think that the term needs to be, um, I, th- I do think it needs to be separated and uh maybe that's just personal opinion um but i i do i don't see us in in the same light like i think your sacrifices and your commitment while while we are all out here serving our communities and serving our our countries in different ways i do think there is a bit of a distinction
0: and isn't that something that you would have that opinion and you're missing a leg
1: mm.
0: <laughs> yeah I mean not I that, thought of it like that not that it's common uh, among RCMP to uh, end up as an amputee because of your service, but you are you're missing a foot. so you, how is your sacrifice how is the danger of your job any less than ours
1: it's not It's not different in any way, shape or form, and I think I adamantly believe that way more so now. I think that my appreciation for veterans, like military veterans, has grown exponentially since I became a Mountie. And um my sacrifice is definitely the same, but I, I don't know that I just I don't consider us entirely under this we're in the same umbrella, but we're what we have just slightly different um angles. I, I don't really know how to how else to explain it, but I think there's some division too. And I don't think some of the military people consider us veterans either. And and certainly that's shown it's um to me, it, over recent months, um, I know that not too long ago, Veterans Affairs did a an article on me, and I did see some comments on the article um, by people who who don't consider RCMP officers the same. And so, I feel like if if the consensus or the the general feeling from military vets is that we're different, then then maybe we are. Um, I certainly don't want to lay claim to a title if, if it's not a welcome thing. If, does that make sense?
0: Well, I would also would suggest not to kowtow to the douchebags, because there's always lots of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You that know, is true. Uh,
0: when it comes to the dick measuring of who's a real veteran, <laughs> I've been called not a real veteran, and I was in a freaking war. Um, hmm. You know, and, and by veterans. <laughs> So, so, what?
1: What constitutes being a veteran? Then let's discuss. What, why? Why would people consider you not a veteran? Then
0: so the legal definition is well, because ba- the answer to your question is douchebaggery, but <laughs> um, uh, the trauma Olympics, and it's also the service Olympics. You know, um, and, and this happens only from insecure people, uh, pe- people that are secure in their service, Uh, like somebody in your neck of the woods, actually, he's, well, a little bit further over, he's in Comox. This dude's a super soldier. Uh, Tim Turner, T2, we call him. And free fall commando, numerous, numerous tours, Afghanistan, Yugoslavia. He was actually on my tour in uh, Croatia. Um, Every high-speed, low-drag thing that you could imagine, he's done you know, been there, done that, has the t-shirt and the pins, has jump wings from numerous countries. Like, dude is a super soldier legend. And yet, when I said, when I was in conversation with him, I said, well, I only served five years. So he's like, would you shut up with the only part? Like, you served. <laughs> you know. So we are douchey douche to each other. We're douchey to ourselves. And um, it, it all boils down to, uh, people that are insecure. If you are secure in your own service, all you ever do is reach, uh, reach down to lift other people up. You know, you don't need to push anybody down to make yourself feel bigger, better. So I, I would suggest not giving too much weight to any of the douches that um, uh, look at your medals and go, what the hell did you get those for? You're a freaking Mountie. You know, uh, not realizing that Mounties serve overseas as well. You know, uh, met several of them that uh, went to the Balkans, God help them, <laughs> and uh, they, they walked the same ground. But the injury of PTSD, it doesn't matter how you got it. It doesn't matter the modality. What matters is do you hurt? Do you need help? End of line. There's nothing else to it.
1: I 100% agree with that. I mean, I, I don't consider my sacrifice any less than I just consider it slightly different, I Mm. think is really the best way to, to, um, to express that. And I just, but again, I just don't want to lay claim to a title that um, may not be as, um, it's not as common. And I know that there's controversy around what we are considered. And so I'll just maintain that, that my sacrifice was, was equal. It's just different.
0: And I think that's the best way to look at it. You know, um, as somebody said to you about uh, the battlefield, so to speak for yourself as a cop being on uh, duty for about 23 years, you never know around which corner there, there's somebody that wishes you harm you just never know so you're you're always on whereas we know when we're deployed it's on then when we get home it's not we know that con- uh, consciously but once you've been on <laughs> the hyper vigilance just doesn't go away you, you, no. you, you don't turn it off and uh and it can be it can be haunting the hyper was i didn't hear you on when you're interviewed by jason um, talking a lot about hypervigilance, but I imagine that's something that you went through uh, after your shooting incident.
1: I'm, I'm still very hypervigilant. Um, I don't know that that, I think it lessens and it ebbs and it flows in terms of what's going on in my life, but I don't know that I'm ever going to be at a stage or a state that would be considered normal. I think I'm always extra um sensitive to my surroundings and and that fight or flight mode never really goes away or I shouldn't say never goes away but it's it's certainly always um, an issue that I have to face multiple times during the day it's still now and it's been almost 24 years so that hypervigilance is a it's a bitch because it makes it difficult to relax it makes you um, so hyper aware of what's happening around you that it's tough to be present. I find
0: mm-hmm. because
1: you're so, uh, engaged and aware and you swivel head, you know, you're always looking around, seeing what's happening. Um, and it's, and it's a physical reaction that's, that's tiring.
0: It's one of the reasons we've got to have her back to the wall in a restaurant and have Absolutely. it be, be in a good vantage point. My uh, wife and I went to Victoria last summer to an Airbnb uh, right on Fantan alley. And that ain't the Victoria I remember from 30 years ago, let me tell you. It is not the same. Um, I watched a guy die uh, from a drug overdose while he was being treated. Like, oh, boy. Oh, and, man. Uh, so not exactly, um, you know, then there's the tent cities and all this. Like, no, of this was here 30 years ago. Um, but we, we were supposed to be there for a nice relaxing time, but the hypervigilance in a downtown core was off the charts so my wife's like, "Hey, I'm over here." I'm like, "I know, but I'm not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm everywhere else. There's bad guys out there, and uh, and there's stuff going on, and it's tough for our spouses not to take that serious, not to take it personally when you're yeah. not when you're not present with them." Yeah,
1: but it's a it's a it's a safety measure, right? It's a self protection mode, and you you have to be doing that, otherwise someone can hurt you. There are bad guys out there, and I think that's taking me a really long time to. I was a good, um, I was very social when I got into policing and I I loved people. And then all of a sudden I get shot and everybody is instantly a bad guy. And so I had to flip my, it's, it's taking a lot of conscious effort now to revert back to who I was before I got shot because everyone was a good guy and then everybody instantly became a bad guy. And so only now am I still learning tools to try to, remind myself that my reality is is not, in fact, um, the way it is out there in the world. Not everybody is, in fact, a bad guy. And so it's taking me time to kind of revert back into who I was before.
0: Well, hypervigilance is a bitch to overcome uh, at the best of times, but you have a constant reminder because you're missing a foot. So it's hard hard to forget that there's bad guys out there.
1: It's true. I, I think that I've said that a lot of times, too, over the years is that, Even when I feel like I'm doing well from my PTSD side of things, I have that constant physical reminder that just is never going to go away because of my leg and having to. You know, I'm aware of every single step that I take. I'm aware of the train. I'm aware of where I place my foot. Like it just never leaves my conscious brain because it can't, and so that makes it even more difficult, I think, to escape some of the the PTSD triggers and realities that I face.
0: It's also a gift. Because the hardest part, the greatest uh, thing about the injury of PTSI, a post-traumatic stress injury, is that what makes it challenging is that it requires enormous self-awareness in order to manage it enormous self-awareness. Agreed. And and if you tell somebody they're not self-aware, they'll slap you in the face because it seems like an insult. But it's true. Uh, PTSD is blinding. It blinds you. It it turns off your self-awareness. And you think that all these problems are external when in fact they're internal. So having a physical reminder You can't really get away from that, that, okay, what I'm experiencing right now, that is part of a post-traumatic stress injury. That is what's going on. It's like, oh yeah, I really am injured, missing a foot, whereas um, uh, for the rest of us, you have to give yourself that grace, that grace of, ah, fuck, right, forgot, I'm injured, that's why this is happening. This isn't my spouse that's making me mad. This is my mad that's making me mad and um this is me overreacting so I'm taking something personal when it's not personal this is this is me. This is not the person who's road raging that's that's setting me off. This is me setting me off this is this is a me thing. It's not a them thing, and you have to remind yourself constantly so having that uh very blatant physical reminder in a way, can be a blessing as well, I think.
1: I don't know what I've ever considered a blessing. So, <laughs> But what I will say too, though, is is that I think sometimes when we talk about PTSD or PTSI or operational stress injuries, however we want to phrase it, I think it's difficult for people to not want to assign themselves a place on a continuum of what's worst and what's kind of least bad. Mm. You know, do you know what I mean? And I think that for some people they look at somebody like me and, and if I'm going to put my hand up and say, yeah, I've got post-traumatic stress, um, it almost, having, having an amputated leg almost lends a different level of credibility or validity or something, which I think is ridiculous, but I, it's kind of understandable and, and, um, and I, I kind of get it, but it, I don't want that kind of situation to minimize what somebody else's experience is. Because I really don't view it that way anymore. Um, I kind of had an eye opening experience that I I wrote about, um, which was when I went into the rehab facility that I went to. And I'm not talking in any way about the psychological side. When I went there, it was straight up just the, the rehab for my leg. And when I went in there, I was at a very low, low. And when I go in, and I'm a person who has an amputated leg, and I have a that point, a a very big gaping wound on my, on my left leg from the surgery where they were trying to restore circulation to my foot. So anyways, I went in there on a wheelchair and, and I'm looking around and I'm surrounded by people who are stroke victims and burns and brain injuries and spinal cords and, and all these different things. And I felt very much like I was lucky. And it kind of was a very strange position to be in because I didn't feel lucky. I felt a lot of grief. I felt a lot of trauma. I felt shafted. I was angry. I was bitter. And so I realized pretty quickly that there was no value in looking at my situation in comparison to somebody else's. It's not like I had a better, luckier ride, easier path. I mean, there there just is no value there. And so I've really tried hard over the years to remind myself and others that Putting yourself in a certain place on a continuum doesn't, um, it it does no good in terms of recovery and and adjusting to whatever our circumstances are.
0: Boils down to, am I injured? Does it hurt? Do I need help? Exactly. The end. It's just that simple. Yeah. And does it hurt? Yes. Then you need help. Is it affecting your life? Yes. Then you need help. Is it affecting your relationships? Is it affecting your employment stability? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you need help, absolutely. If, if it's affecting your life or 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 messing with the quality of your life, the yeah. back in nineteen ninety eight when you were shot, nobody was talking about PTSD. No, nope. nobody. I know because I got out in nineteen ninety five, and I was such a high flyer; it was ridiculous. So. In. If 1995 was today and I was about to get out of the army, they'd be like, no, 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 we got to talk. Uh, you got to go through a process. You are a high flyer, man. And uh, we, 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 you got to talk to some people. They would have seen it because it was ridiculously blatant. Now, for, for yourself, what kind of help did you get uh, after the shooting?
1: When I was in the hospital at the very start, I remember a psychiatrist coming and it was just almost part of the, I think that process, all the boxes they had to check maybe. So they sent somebody in and I didn't have a relationship with him or anything, which I I was in Vancouver. So that's fair. And I remember having a a business card left on my bedside table. And I remember having a, I don't remember the actual conversation, but I must've been okay. And it was kind of more, okay, well, here's my number call if, if you need anything. But I don't remember any discussion about post-traumatic stress at that time, just more a check-in, like a psychological well-being check-in. So then when I was living in Vancouver doing my rehab, I started to reach out for for help, and I did not have good experiences. But I don't know that post-traumatic stress, that term, was ever really brought up until 2003. So several years had passed by. So while I was looking for for help and I was advocating for myself in those really dark times right after I was shot. I really don't remember post-traumatic stress being a phrase until 2003 when I was officially diagnosed with it.
0: So are you able to extrapolate on when you reached out for help and it wasn't very helpful? Yeah. What that was like?
1: <clears throat> it was so disheartening. I was, um, I was suicidal. There was no question in my mind that for a chunk of time I was suicidal. I was angry that I lived. I wanted to die, but I didn't have the, the capacity or the wherewithal to really act on that. And I'm obviously grateful that I didn't succumb to that darkness, um, but it was very real to me. And I was, in hindsight, I was fortunate that I had had a, um, a bout with depression Uh, when I was in my early twenties and so I had sought help back then. And I really, truly believe that having that experience raised my awareness about myself and my behaviors and my own triggers and symptoms, not calling anything, you know, PTSD, but it certainly, um, gave me some insight as to my own mental health. And so I'm kind of grateful for that because that was before I was shot. Then fast forward to when I am shot I had a little bit more openness to trying to find help. And so I went and I reached out to somebody who had come very highly recommended, but it was, I would take a taxi to this person's um, office and the person seemed very distracted, very caught up with uh, things that were going on in the person's house, um, because that's where the office was, letting a dog in and out, forgotten lunch lunchboxes, um, just feeling very much like I was not the priority. And I would go there crying. I would cry during the session. There would be a lot of distraction and I would leave crying and I felt even worse because I felt like the value that I, if I had any value at all, it was certainly not being reinforced by those experiences and I certainly wasn't making any progress. So I finally quit with that. Um, And then what ended up happening is when I was heading back to work, I had done the physical side of things and thought that that was all I needed to do. And then I was faced with, well, you need to go and get a psychologist to tick the boxes and say that you're actually mentally okay to go back. And I did not know what to do with that. Um, So I had to reach out and I was was forced to do it again. And it was very difficult because I was so fearful that some stranger was not going to really understand me. We weren't going to be able to build a rapport and I wasn't going to get that approval that I so desperately wanted. So I, it, I was, it was caught up in a lot of fear, um, that whole experience trying to make sure that I was proving my capabilities and my, and my abilities, but also knowing full well that if I said something that was kind of wrong or taken the wrong way, misconstrued, anything like that, then my goals of returning to work were just going to be completely annihilated. So it's loaded, to, you're, st- to you're, seek
0: help. you're still under threat. You're going to this place that's supposed to be um, help and a, s- a soft place to land, but all you're seeing are threats—threats threats to your career.
1: Absolutely, I would rehearse mentally and think, "Okay, if we talk about this, what am I going to say? Like, what are my media lines? Like, how is that going to unfold? And and am I going to be able to effectively convey and con- my own um, strengths and convince this person? That's what I felt like I had to do. I had to persuade this person and prove that I was capable. And so if I failed, I really only had myself to blame.
0: I'm going to ask you a bizarre question and you can say (laughs) pass. It's probably nothing you've thought of. Um, Recently in the news, and I was just in Ottawa testifying about this. um, There was a veteran that was offered the MAID program, so medically assisted suicide when he called Veterans Affairs. Back in the day when you and I, I know suicidal thoughts very, very well. I've been there a lot. Um, been clear for a while, though. But when suicidal thoughts were dogging you bad, if made was an option, would you have considered it?
1: I probably would have. And it's not a bizarre question because I knew when I was in those really dark times, I knew that I was not going to be able to, if I were to act, I knew that I was not going to be able to do anything violent. I wasn't going to be able to shoot myself or hang myself or do anything. I, I knew that about myself. What I really wanted to do was overdose. And that's exactly what I sort of did. I kind of consistently was so um, focused on managing or controlling my pain that I would often show up at Physio stoned and get sent back home because I was not in any, you know, I was not <laughs> uh, equipped to be out in the world. Under the, but I think that that was my lame attempt at Hiding, um, escaping, and not really fully acting, but wanting very passively, aggressively to not be here. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. Suicide. I wanted
1: to overdose. I felt like, yeah, I felt like that would be the easiest, most reasonable way to just slip away. And that's the phrase that I always used. I wanted to slip away without causing any more drama. Trauma, pain to my family and my friends. But I, I, and so yes, it does make, uh, that does make sense to me.
0: So the reason I'm bringing this up is because in March of next year, MADE will be available to anybody for mental health issues. So if you go through what I've gone through, what you've gone through, and what tens of thousands of us have gone through, um, as of March of next year, when you're in that dark place, instead of getting help to crawl out of that dark place, which you have done and I have done, healing does happen. And there is a way out of that dark pit. Um, I haven't had a suicidal thought in, I don't know, almost a year. Like it's, it's been a while. I'm on the other side of it. So that you don't need a permanent solution to a temporary problem. The problem is temporary. So when made becomes available do you see a whole lot of people that out of desperation are going to say yes to MAID Cause they don't know that there is a way out of that pit.
1: I think it's a slippery slope for sure, because we, you and I are, you know, we are testaments to the fact that there is hope and that there is healing and it's not easy. And yes, those feelings and those thoughts can persist for a long period of time, but I do believe that there is always hope. So I think it, it's a, it's going to be dicey.
0: Dacey, to say the least, um, we're going to be killing our heroes. Yep, we're, we're going to be killing our heroes and and so many others because of an inept mental health system.
1: I I agree with that. It's we are so we are so not. We're doing a lot better, but we still have a long way to go in terms of supporting and and assisting all of our veterans and. I think that it's really unfortunate in many ways. I'm a good advocate for myself, and I've been trained to be like that, but I know many people are not good advocates for themselves, and I would never want the fact that someone doesn't have a strong um, ability to advocate for themselves to, to go down that slippery slope. Um, we have to do better. We, we have to do better. And we're doing better, but we still have a long way to go, and I don't want to lose people along the way.
0: It seems that, from what I know from the inside stories that I'm aware of, that the internal support systems within the RCMP, although they have improved, not a lot. No,
1: they haven't. Um, and and I'm not here to to criticize because I think I, I try to subscribe to the idea that people are doing the best that they can, and and I do think that there. Oh, I know there have been major major strides forward, but. Implementing a program is a lot more than just implementing a program. It has to actually be effective, and it's got to reach where it needs to reach. And it's difficult within the organization because it's so multifaceted, tentacled. um, The resources are not available in smaller communities. Uh, You know, even finding consistent mental health. Like, I remember being up north, and when they would send a psychologist in, it was not somebody who lived in the community. It was someone who would fly in you know, intermittently. And we didn't have a lot of consistency with that. So if you would start to build a rapport with somebody, then the next time it might be somebody else. And it feels like you're starting at square one. And those things are significant for people who are struggling. I want consistency. I want that relationship. I need that ongoing, you know, that con- continuity. And so I I do think that there, have, there has to be a lot of uh, approaches. And it's not a one size fits all kind of approach, but we still need to do a lot better because so many people are still suffering. So many people are experiencing delays in accessing treatment and care. Um, We just, we can't have that. Not when people are suffering to the extent that they are.
0: It really feels like this is a gap that peer support can really help with if it's done right. There's an organization called OSI can, and they're for us, you, first responders, like everybody. And they are a peer support network with peer support training, because if peer support done wrong will do more harm than good. It'll create sanctuary trauma. It'll be bad. Yes. But if you know how to do it correctly, and there's books out there, Sid Gravel, I had him on the show. He's written like five books on peer support. So it's out there. Um, One of the challenges with peer support is that it's usually run by the injured, which it has to be, but it has to be the injured who are well on the other side of the healing um, side of things uh, so that they can truly understand. But the the challenge with that is that now that they're in a high burnout position running these peer support groups and, um, and if they don't have the training, if they don't have the ability to put their ego aside, uh, then the peer support does more harm than good. But if it's done right, um, it can fill a lot of gaps because it gives you that sense of connection, that sense of you're not alone, and that's where people that are injured with uh, with an OSI, an operational stress injury, the only safe place that I know for them are places without ego, uh, where people get it, and there's no judgment, and um, and people kind of get where you're coming from, and they don't try to minimize or they don't play the trauma Olympics. Like mine's worse than yours, um, and and I've only found that in properly run peer support groups that and my arm wrestling club, that place is great. <laughs> Everybody's good. Get into arm wrestling. That that's my solution to everything.
1: <laughs> I think that, um, you're right. I haven't had much experience with the formal peer, um, you know, group support type of stuff. Uh, when I was in rehab, I was in a very small and by small, I mean, three of us, <clears throat> um, informal <laughs> group that was at my my rehab facility and we all had amputations of different levels and, and sort of different experiences as to why we were there. But what I did realize quickly was how beneficial it was because back to my my point about earlier feeling like I was not as wounded or as impacted by my situation as the other two that were with me. It was the equalizer to be in there and talk about our hurdles and our struggles and our emotions. And that's really what made me understand the value of sharing my my experiences with somebody else that was going through such a dark time themselves. So since then, I haven't done any official peer stuff, but I'm a big advocate for it because I think that while I didn't live in places or I wasn't um, struggling at certain times when those options were available to me, um, I, I do think that there is a significant amount of value that can come from that group setting that you, it's just different from getting one on one counseling.
0: Well, what we're doing right now, having this conversation two people that get it right, that can connect with each other and understand uh, you can understand me. I can understand you because we have the common because we're both trauma survivors, and we get it. It's a it's a rough go, And but healing does happen. So because of that, um, what we're doing right now is peer support. So all the people tuning in, I'll name some of them, Alan Hunter, Roger Chabot, Kate Leithgow, uh, Alex, and the J-Man is on here as well. Um, <laughs> but hearing us tell our stories, hearing you tell your stories, that is peer support. Because it allows them to connect to that and go, oh my God, in me I see you, in you I see me, you know, the namaste thing. And then they realize, okay, I'm not crazy. It's okay to ask for help. Holy shit, healing happens. I'm not alone. Um, That's why these conversations can be so incredibly powerful. Uh, Because anybody that's tuning in, that's their peer support, because they're hearing their peers um, moving through this space and getting on the other side of it. You and I have both been highly suicidal at one point. I even took a jab at it uh, a year and a half ago. Oh, And, wow. and I never thought I was going to do it, but I did. I actually took a crack at it. And um, thank God that didn't work out. Once again, my exhausted guardian angels flapped on down. and said, not today, dum-dum. And uh, <laughs> you got work to do, dummy. Yeah. And uh, so I made it, and I'm still here, and I didn't destroy my children by by being able to complete. So yay for me. But true. But I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to share that. But if I don't, then other people think, oh, you can't understand. You don't get it. You haven't been there. Yeah, I fucking have. Yeah. And so have you. And it doesn't matter if you're an Afghanistan veteran, uh, RCMP. I was in the Balkans. Uh, Like, it it doesn't matter, because trauma is trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter if it was from sexual assaults as a child, which I also experienced. Um, Like, it doesn't matter. You know, it it all goes together. So a lot of us end up in these trades as cops and whatnot because we were disempowered as children through one way or another. Why did you join the RCMP? Was it just because, hey, that looks like a good job or was the history of it or did you want to wear a cape
1: (laughs) i think that um you know sometimes i feel like i'm i almost have to be a little defensive or explain more so over explain Mm. how i ended up in this organization i did not want to become a police officer it was not part of my youth and so i really felt this when i went to depot to start training because I was surrounded by a lot of people who had been trying for years. In fact, one, one person in my troop had been trying for 18 years to be Mm. a police officer and an RCMP officer specifically. And I had decided in January, 1995 and by August, 1995, I was there. So I, I almost felt like a little bit like I didn't deserve to be there. I didn't quite belong, but what I do know is, so I started university thinking that I was going to be a phys ed teacher. I came from a family of teachers and that was kind of what I was a natural progression for me. I was going to be a phys ed teacher because I was into sports and liked all that, decided um, not to pursue teaching, did my master's instead, promptly moved home at 23 with two degrees and no job. And that was when I really started um, sinking low. That was my first experience with depression. In fact, was um, that phase of my life because I felt like I'd done all the right things and I felt like I deserved to have a good job, a career. Um, I had gone into what I, I was thinking I was going to go into health promotion or, or marketing or that for a team like a, a, the Ottawa Senators or the Canadian Figure Skating Association, do that kind of stuff. And it didn't pan out. And I was very discouraged, very disheartened. And I met a police officer in my hometown at the gym that I was working at. And he was one who suggested, hey, Laurie, like, you're into fitness and, and you're outgoing. Have you ever considered policing? I truly, really never had. And so I, I did apply. And for me, growing up in Ontario, specifically where I did, which was on the border of St. Lawrence River, so just you could see the United States from where I was, the RCMP had a different profile in my hometown. And I think I was intrigued by that, that um, perception of what they did. And what I saw them doing was federal work. So when I when I um, applied, that's what I thought I was going to be doing, and so then I promptly go to Depot and get issued my new uniform, and I'm like, mm, I don't recall really seeing a lot of this in my um, experience. So it was a bit of an eye opener to to see exactly what my job could entail. So I almost felt like I had to justify why I was such a late comer to the game, you know, like why I wasn't one of those passionate people and did it somehow minimize my commitment to the profession because I wasn't one of those people who wanted to be a police officer my whole life. Um, but I don't, it never did. I was, when I first got to Depot, like I was hair straight back. I loved it. I was very dedicated, very committed. And I don't think that my lack of interest leading up to that day in any way impacted my devotion going forward.
0: What was your first posting? Kitimat. So the first posting <laughs> was the was where you got injured. What yes. did you think about uh, going from Ontario, from Brockville, Ontario, to Kitimat, BC? It's a very different terrain.
1: Yeah, very different terrain. Um, I remember standing at attention in the drill hall when they were handing out our postings, and I had put Ontario my first choice, Alberta my second choice, and BC my third choice. So I got BC. And uh, I remember them saying, White, my last name. You know, they call you by that when you're in training, White. Kitimat. And I thought, where the hell's Kitimat?
0: (laughs) So I quickly
1: ran and got a paper map because it was 1996. And I looked around and around and around Vancouver and Kitimat was not there. (laughs) And then my finger on the map goes up north, 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 and there is Kitimat. So I flew into Terrace, uh, near Kitimat. And I kind of joke and say that it was raining the day that I flew there and it proceeded to rain for the next five years. Um, but it was, it was a big, it was a huge change. I didn't know a soul. I had, you know, no friends, obviously I had no experience doing the job. I was just straight out of training. It was, it was a lot to take on, but it was exciting too.
0: It doesn't even snow there a lot, does it? Or
1: <laughs> Yeah, it snows a lot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> one night I woke up and I remember seeing on the news it had snowed four feet overnight and I was pretty st- Shocked about the possibility that that could even happen.
0: So you're really uh, tapping into the history of the RCMP. You had, probably had an RCMP dog sled. I'm thinking,
1: <laughs> not up there. Not did you did there. you
0: patrol with a the snowmobile?
1: They do have some of that equipment, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> five years. So let's uh, let's talk about that day.
1: Yeah. Let's so, let's talk
0: about the, the work up to 1998, November 27th. Um, you were on the the trail of a uh, suspected pedophile. How, yes. So how did that uh, begin when you first got that call or, hey, here's your file, go check this out? What was going on?
1: Well, I'd been investigating him for a few months and he had already been to court on one uh, charge. So this first court appearance for sexual interference is what it was. Uh, it was in September of 1998. And then I, I know that some of the other victims in the community, it's a small town, word travels fast. People knew that he was going to court for this other file. And I think it um, sparked some confidence in some of the other victims around town. So they were a little more open to coming forward after the initial complaint. And so I ended up getting a few more victims and um, some more evidence to be able to go to his house in the end of November to execute a search warrant to uh, arrest him and to see some, some computer-type stuff off of his, um, out of his residence. So November 27th of 1998, I and two partners went to his residence. It was a townhouse complex, and I had just taken a step off of the little um, step up to the door underneath the carport area. And I had one partner on my left, and then the third partner was around the back of the townhouse. And all of a sudden, I just heard a loud pop. And it was like a balloon popped right beside my ear, and my head was, like, reverberating. Mm -hmm. And there's like, an instant disconnect in terms of reality and, and sound and kind of what was happening around me. And I remember looking at the door, so I heard this pop. I looked at the door, and there was a black hole in the door, and then I smelled some, some gunpowder or that residue and that, that, um, that familiar smell, and I looked down and I saw this smoke coming from my right shin, and I could taste the particles on my tongue, and I just remember how strange it was that in that split second, all my senses kicked in before my brain actually realized what had happened. And that's when I realized and I said to my partner, as I'm standing there, I said, I've been shot. And he said, what? And I said, I've been shot. And he said, well, lie down. And so I laid down on my left side. It was my the smoke was coming from my right leg. That's where I'd been shot. And and he quickly looked and and he said into the radio, it's 1033, which is in the policing world. It's 1033 means officer down. And he quickly grabbed me behind my um, my collar and the back of my gun belt and he dragged me to safety, um, behind a a vehicle that was in the, the driveway. So it was very surreal in terms of how much it takes so long to explain that when it was just like a split second, all my senses kicked in at once. I get it. And all of a sudden you don't know what happened.
0: The guy that shot you, did he surrender after this? He didn't
1: surrender. Um, There was about an eight or 10 hour standoff and they had to get assembled, like the emergency response team from the North District. You know, it takes a while to get people because of just geography and where people are located. So they ended up um, having like a hostage negotiator and that. And so he was holed up in the house for for several hours. And when they finally did um, get into the house, he had killed himself.
0: What did he shoot you with? Of course, you no, just froze so on me. He used a
1: sawed-off three rifle.
0: Okay, uh, oh, so you, you froze for a second. So he he used a sawed-off what? He used a sawed-off three
1: hundred three rifle.
0: Three hundred three. So that is a that's a thirty caliber round. That's uh, that's good for moose. It's a little bit uh, much for a shin.
1: Yeah, so that bullet, well, you know a lot more about guns than I do, but what I do know is that that kind of bullet hit something hard, so it hit my two lower leg bones and then they just mushroom. So it pretty much took my whole calf with it.
0: Yeah, it would. Uh that's that's a big round. That was actually a battle round in World War II. That's probably what he used was a Lee-Enfield if it was a 303.
1: Eef.
0: That is the Canadian Service Rifle. <laughs> From from World War Two, wow, does the job?
1: It certainly did.
0: <laughs> God damn it! How were you treated by your fellow officers after this happened?
1: Very well. Uh, I think that being posted to a small community certainly. I had those relationships with with everybody there, and while I was only with two other people in that moment. I had a tremendous amount of support. And in fact, that really even fed into why when I did return to work, I actually chose to go back there. And I think that was really important for me to surround myself with people that I, I knew well and that I had that preexisting relationship with because I felt like passing the tests and getting the, psychi- the psychologists to you know check all the boxes to say that I was fit to go back to duty, well, those were all things that had to be done. That's the black and the white of it. But really, I needed to know: could I actually do this? Like, was I equipped well enough to be able to return to to duty and and resume my career and, and finish it out? And so, I knew that I needed to reduce some of those external stress stressors and pressures. and And I chose to go back to Kitimat because I would be surrounded by people who supported me and knew me and and wanted me to succeed. And so, if I was going to have the best chance of success, I needed to. Um, I, I just needed to choose to go back to be, to, I needed to be in a comfortable place to prove myself to myself.
0: Did they give you full duties? Did you, did you go back to the same role or was it something else? They
1: didn't give me those duties. I earned the mark.
0: Goddamn right. You did. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I was the only person. And so this is where I'm going to get a little fired up. Um, at that point in 1990, uh, well, by then it was 1999. Um, I was required to do the pair test, which for the policing world is the physical obstacle course test that all RCMP officers have to do to uh, attend depot, but also to graduate from depot And you have to do it. It's a time test. And it was infuriating for me because I was told that I had to do the pair. Well, at no point had I ever heard of anybody having to do the pair in order to come back from any sort of medical leave. So I was pissed off about that. Like, why are the rules different for me? Uh, In hindsight, I'm glad that I did that because I think that doing that pair and proving that I could do it gave some extra legitimacy to my um, coworkers that I was, in fact, capable. Like, I had reached the same standard everybody else had, so... Instead of having people roll their eyes and go, oh, my God, like she's a liability or I don't want to work with her because she's got one leg, like all those kinds of things. I had that sort of piece of paper to say, you know, I, I, I did this and, and it, I earned I, my I've way done, back.
0: I've done the peer test a couple of times. And uh, it's funny that they would ask you to do it missing a foot, you know, without any sort of special um, uh accommodations being made. And yet I've met quite a few RCMP members who are active serving that there's no way in hell they would pass the pair. You know, they're, uh, <laughs> eat that's why pa- to me,
1: markets, yeah, I mean, to me, it seemed like they wanted me to fail, right? Like, um, I think it, in hindsight, it was groundbreaking. It was precedent setting. So I do have some compassion, mate. And no, I don't know if compassion is the right word. I said a little bit better understanding. Maybe I still don't agree with it. But I think I understand a little bit better why that was held out there. But I also do think that there needs to be more consistent standards placed. If, if, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but what I do believe is that if someone goes off on, I don't know, medical leave for a certain amount of time, well, maybe they have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get back instead of just having the doctor tick the box to say that the person's ready to go back. I mean, you can't, you can't apply different policies for different circumstances. There has to be some consistency.
0: When that's you did, my belief. when you returned back to the, to the job, how did it change the type of cop that you were when you went back? Cause you wouldn't have been the same cop going back as you were before.
1: No, I, uh, that's a good question. I don't know that I've really ever thought about how different I would have been. I would say that because I had undiagnosed PTSD at that point, I would say that my hypervigilance in that was definitely heightened. Um, I was way more difficult on myself. I was kind of judgy about how I did things, and I would find myself analyzing how I did things and how I sort of physically moved through different situations. So, for example, if I did a traffic stop and there was snow on the ground, I would find myself afterwards kind of debriefing in my own head about how I could have done things a little bit differently, but more, not from the tactical side so much, but more from the physical side. Is that, does that kind of.
0: Yeah. I, I was just wondering, cause I know that um, when soldiers become cops, they're different than the other cops. They operate differently, especially if they have a tour under their belt, especially if they were combat arms and uh, they are more comfortable in, in the, the, Sticky situations, but they also treat roadside stops um, with a certain level of hypervigilance that gives them an edge that others don't have because of the, because of their awareness so i'm curious if you took extra procedural precautions tactically when you would pull somebody over or next time you were knocking on a door um, the way you would position yourself if your hand was on your on uh, uh, on the hilt of uh, your sidearm, uh, that sort of thing.
1: I think I did, but I don't know that I would have been able to identify that in that moment sure. in those early, in those early days. I think that just came with hindsight and, and wisdom and life experience. So I think that I, because I was still very new, and all my training was still very fresh in my mind because this happened only when I had two and a half years service. Like I, It wasn't like I had become in any way complacent or anything like that. So I think that I can look back at some of the things that I did now and, and view them and analyze them a little differently than I would have had I been debriefing in my head right after it happened. So I think you're absolutely right, but I just don't know that I had that awareness then.
0: RCP get very little um, handgun training. And the annual qualifications pretty basic. It's pretty easy to pass. Um, hey, <laughs> it, it is. I've I've taken it. I've done it. It was easy as pie. I'm like, really? This was a high score. Really? This? And um, so, after the shooting, did you um, do more range time stuff like that? Uh, did you spend more time uh, training the, for the tactical stuff?
1: So, yes and no. Um, And the reason I say that is because I was worried that the sound of a gun going off was going to be freaking me out. And and I wasn't going to be able to stay calm and and in control. And so, before I even passed the pair to go back to work, I had gone myself to the range to shoot. And I knew because I was shot with a high-powered rifle... I knew the sounds were obviously very different from pistol and all that. And so I knew that I needed to go there and hear those sounds myself when I was in control and knowing, okay, this is actually when it's going to happen. Like I'm going to pull the trigger and that's when the sounds going to happen. And then I needed to see how I was feeling about those sounds because obviously when I was shot, it was unpredicted. And so I couldn't really, I needed to have that peace of mind. So I had gone to the range. So by the time I had finished and passed the pair and all of a sudden the RCMP came back and went, mm, well, now we want you to see a psychologist and we want you to go do FATS training, which is the firearm simulations, like the use of force computerized simulator thing. Um, I had to do driving. I had to do police driving. Well, I'd already gotten my my driver's license back because I do drive with my prosthetic foot um, and also the, the firearms qualifications. And so... I had done all those things to kind of tick those off of my list in order to make sure that I was as prepared as I could be. So I had done that preparation. And when I went back to work, um, I, I actually kind of welcomed any of the shooting qualification things because it reinforced to me that I was still comfortable with the whole gun situation and that it was important to me to to remind myself that I was more in control than I you know, all that control that is so elusive. And we all think that we have when we're young (laughs) and then it gets taken away from you, but I needed to kind of regain some sense of confidence.
0: Were you extra careful at home, sidearm by the bed, that kind of thing?
1: Nope, we didn't. I mean, unless you were on call, you'd never really brought your gun home. Uh, You leave it at, um, it was locked up. Right. So, but I was more hypervigilant, but I didn't Uh, Again, I I hadn't been diagnosed with PTSD or anything, but I was definitely more concerned with safety. And that's one of the things around my current environment that I'm still very hyper-focused on is all the little rituals and the routines that I have to go through in order to have that confidence and that comfort level before I leave my home or before I go to sleep at night, that kind of stuff.
0: Ever get up at 3 in the morning with a baseball bat and you have to clear the house, check every room?
1: Uh, I have. I have, in fact, done that. Um, I, you know, the house alarm, <laughs> I have gone multiple times leaving the house and being concerned that my garage door was not closed or that my, something was not, uh, something was left on. It was going to cause a fire. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely a day to day battle. It's literally, um, day to day.
0: My wife was pretty freaked out the first time I had to clear the house. <laughs> It's like somebody's in the house, just stay yep. here. T- I could have sworn to God I heard somebody enter the house. and I was. Well, clear. there's
1: nothing anybody can say. to, to You have to prove and gain, gather that yeah. proof and that evidence that it's not in fact happening.
0: Yeah.
1: No one can tell you that it's not happening. You have to prove to yourself it's not.
0: No, I would check every nook and cranny and it, would, it happened more than a couple of times. Yep. <laughs> so the family just got used to it, especially the kids like, oh, there he goes again with a bat. Yep. <laughs> it's like, well, I have to. And I, don't
1: need, I don't need a bat because I have extra legs beside my bed. I can just get up and bat them with it. Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> well, tell me about the speaking gigs that you've been doing uh, since. Do you go looking for them or are they just coming to you and people are asking you because they know your your background?
1: I've done a lot of speaking over the years, starting back quite quickly after I returned to work. and. I was always very open to it. I think I do have a bit of a teaching background, despite the fact that I didn't become a teacher. I I, I think that I have always been fairly comfortable in those situations. And so I was always honored. I still am flattered, um, humbled when people want me to come on a show or, or go and do a, a speech. I think that since I did my book and because the timing of that publication and also the fact that we were sort of coming out of COVID um, and things are actually starting to happen and conferences are starting to take place again. I think that was just good timing. And so I've been um, welcoming the opportunities to get back out there and connect with people again in ways that I feel like I'm giving back because I don't get to give back in the same way because I'm not a police officer anymore. And it helps me stay in this realm where I hope that I can help other people and I can share my story in the hopes of reminding people that they aren't alone and that there is hope and help out there.
0: Is that uh, the the same reason that you decided to write the book?
1: Yeah, I think I decided to write the book when I was pretty much in the hospital in 1998. I didn't really ever know what it was going to look like. And over the 22 years that followed that, I would always go back to what I had written because it was stuff that I had added over those two decades, I would go back and look at it and go, this is just not it. This is just not it. Like it was just never the right timing. And I didn't know that maybe the ever the right timing was ever really going to be here. So when COVID hit, I was at home a lot more. I had retired. I went back at it with a different lens. I needed that time in the distance as it turned out yes. to be away from the organization. And that's exactly what I needed. That's why I couldn't publish it in the years that had, you know, the two decades that had led up to that. And so I think that was really important for me to have that slight disconnect. And so when I was able to go back at what I'd written, look at things through a different lens, switch up the tone and sent it to an editor. And I said, I I, I really, I'd like to do something with this. It's been a long-term goal. But if you believe that this is something that I should just bind up at Staples and leave for my kids to read someday, then I want you to be 100% honest um I can take that I can handle it because this is just something that I need to bring to its conclusion whatever that may look like and uh he took a couple of weeks and got back to me and he said no I there's definitely something here and and I think that with some work I think we can we can do this and so that's exactly what I did
0: I like the title of it share share that with our audience here
1: thank you the title is 1033 an officer down steps back up. And as I mentioned, 1033 is the worst radio code here in Canada that you can possibly hear because it means officer down. And the play on words is obviously because I lost my leg and I wanted to um, have that be reflected in the title.
0: That 10 code, that's an RCMP 10 code, but that's uh, pretty common among all police 10 codes, I think, the 1033.
1: I think so. It's just different in, you know, in the States. And so that's why I have to explain. I was recently speaking actually in the States and I had to really explain that code because it's different there. Yeah.
0: And 10 30 is uh, similar, just uh, nobody's been shot. Like nobody's down, but 10 30 is like, get over here. It needs help.
1: Yeah. rush Everybody drop what they're doing.
0: Right. How's the book sales been do- been going? How's the, how's the feedback been?
1: The feedback has been absolutely humbling and um, I think I'm at 102, you know, five stars on Amazon right now, which is, I mean, it's, yeah, thank you. It's been a very humbling and gratifying experience. I did never, I, I never went into this with an idea of being a business person or anything like that. That's just not who I am. I did it as a personal goal. It was a legacy thing for me. It was something that I said I wanted to do. And while it only took me 22 years, I did do it. Um, But really what matters and and what's really brought me the most amount of joy and satisfaction, the messages that people send me. Um, They just, they bring you to tears because you don't realize who is being um, impacted by your story. And I never will know the true extent of it. And these little messages are not little, they're big messages, but they're little snippets about how far reaching, uh, your impact is. And that is what matters to me. So I've, I've received some of the most incredibly heartwarming messages from so many people, people that I I wouldn't even know how they would come across my book, honestly. So it's, um, that's the most meaningful takeaway from this whole process.
0: And again that's the power of recovering out loud. And really out loud if you write a book or you join me on a show like this when you tell your story it is a shining beacon of light to others that they're not alone. And we've we've keep coming back to that in our conversation today. But that is the power of recovering out loud. Everybody has the power to make the world a better place by simply telling their story, recovering out loud. And letting other people know that healing does happen and leading by examples like, here's me healing, look at this. And uh, this is where I was, but now I'm on the other side of it and sharing that story.
1: I think you're right. And I think one of the things we kind of touched on earlier is that if you don't talk about the lows and the dark times, then how do you really appreciate and expect other people to appreciate the the highs and the triumphs, right? If we went out and we were all like, rah, 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 look at Lori, she went back to work, you know, she's an amputee. Like, yeah, that all did happen. And I'm really proud of those things. But they're even more meaningful because of the the low times and the darkness and the things that I had to overcome in order to have those achievements and it's not a straight upward ba- like everyone thinks that oh you, you know you get hurt and then all these great things happen well they they do happen um, but not without a lot of hard work and a, and it's just it's a constant up and down and up and down it's not a straight upward trajectory
0: just got distracted by the first time I've got a spam person on a live stream hot girl picks for you it's like what <laughs> Awesome. What an asshole. <laughs> well, what, what, well, hopefully, what, what,
1: the next one's about Bitcoin or, um, yeah. you know, they'll pay you $5,000 if you do something.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's my cue. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Well, uh, Laurie, thank you so much for making the time. What's the best place to, uh, to find your books? Amazon?
1: Amazon. Yes, please. And if you, uh, if you, if it resonates with you, then by all means, please leave a review and a rating as well. But yeah, Amazon's the easiest place.
0: And would somebody that's uh, on right now, report this sex find biz, dot biz on, uh, <laughs> could you, could you report those comments for me, please? So I don't have to, and I'll delete them later. <laughs> <For> the <assholes. laughs> all right, Lori, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on.
0: All right, sister. Stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tangle Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. And yes, bounties are veterans. Because of record inflation, many Canadians are visiting food banks for the first time in their lives. And more and more families are increasingly reliant on regular food bank usage. The Veterans Association Food Bank has seen a sharp increase in demand, and they urgently need your help. If you are part of a community association such as Rotary, the Lions Club, or a Masonic Lodge, or if you work at a large company, our veterans need your help. Please organize a food drive or a reverse bottle drive to raise donations and funds to support the Veterans Association Food Bank in both Calgary and Edmonton. Individual donations are also welcome. To find out more about how you can help, please visit Veterans Association veteransassociationfoodbank.com. Or you can find them on Facebook. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember recover out loud.